Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about rebirth, which seems appropriate right now, as we all, as a society, contemplate what recovery might look like. Our storytellers today are sharing some really beautiful stories about what it means to rebuild after devastation. Our first story today is from Massimo Ayeti. It's recorded in January 2020 at the Gladstone Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. The theme that night was Silver Linings. So, I'm 20 years old, and I'm sitting in my rented room in Ottawa, where I go to school, and the phone rings, and I find out I have cancer. And the weird thing is, the person telling me I have cancer is my dad. And it all started um, a few months earlier on New Year's Eve, uh, where I'm back home, I'm getting my wisdom teeth pulled out, and everything goes well. And I go back to school, and then we get called back for more tests. No explanations, just more tests. <laughs> so I find myself at the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto, and I'm surrounded by a gaggle of residents asking me really specific questions about symptoms, but not giving me anything else. Um, I go back to school, and um, a few, and then we're back to that phone call um, where my dad calls me and says that they want an MRI. Um, and he asks them, well, why do you want an MRI? Those aren't easy to come by. This must be serious. And they say, well, we can't tell you. And he says, you absolutely will tell me this is my son. And so he tells me, he's like, Massey, you have cancer. And I throw the phone against the wall and crumple to a heap and cry, eventually gather myself up and get the courage to call him back. And he tells me I have something called mucoepidermoid carcinoma. And I, go I Google that every day for weeks. Um, I learned that it's a rare form of cancer that affects one in six million people. But because it's so rare, there isn't much out there. So I download PowerPoint slides from universities with histological images that I'm not equipped to understand. And I see these images of kids with giant lumps in their face that I can't relate to. 
And I just feel so scared and out of control. So I withdraw from school and move back home to Toronto to stay with my dad. Because I was diagnosed by a dentist, um, I find myself in a posh downtown office of an oromaxillofacial surgeon who tells me that I have a cancer affecting one of the million salivary glands in my mouth and that we just have to get it cut out. Uh, what that actually means is that I need to have extensive surgery on my face. So he tells me, he tells me that I'm lucky. He tells me that I'm lucky because all we have to do is cut it out and that I probably won't need chemo or radiation and that I should probably go buy myself a lottery ticket. But I don't feel lucky. And this is really hard because I'm scared and I'm worried and now I'm not sure I have the right to feel that way. And it makes it really hard to come to terms with my illness. And at some point, I even wonder whether I'm allowed to join a cancer therapy group or not. Anyway, they schedule surgery for the middle of Canadian winter, so April. <laughs> and uh, on a brisk morning, uh, my dad and I walked to this uh, hospital. We could see our breath. And they put me under. And over the next 10 hours, they cut out my upper left jaw and my trigeminal nerve, which is a nerve that goes from your face to your brain and that basically does all the sensation. And when I wake up, I find myself in the recovery room and I'm really thirsty and I'm sore and I'm swollen, but I actually have to pee more than anything. And I motion to the nurse and I'm like, I have to pee. And he says, uh, go ahead. And I, I look down and I'm naked and I'm not supposed to be. I wasn't naked going in. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this. I'm a vain 20-something, this is not. And then I realize I have a catheter in my penis, and I'm not sure how that got there, and I feel absolutely scandalized. <laughs> this is not okay. Uh, a few hours later, the uh, surgeon walks in with a big smile on his face, and he says he cut out all the cancer and more. But what this leaves me with is a giant defect, or what they call a defect, which basically means I have a hole connecting my nasal cavity to my mouth. And to help the healing process, they pack that up with gauze and then take a little piece of plastic and screw it to the what's left of the roof of my mouth um, to keep it in place. As you can imagine, this starts to get putrid and I start getting the worst breath in the world. It gets so bad that my sister actually convinces Listerine to donate breath strips so I can go through a day without grossing everyone out. <laughs> Eventually they take it out um, and I'm back with this defect. I go back to school the next term, and um, basically I have pain around the, around the defect and along my scars, and they tell me um, that manage your stress. Manage your stress and take some pain meds and it'll pass. So a year goes by like this. Um, I go and the surgeons decide that I'm gonna have uh, reconstructive surgery. But what that really means is that they're going to peel off my face, take bone from my hip, put it in my jaw to rebuild it, take the muscle from my scalp, rebuild the roof of my mouth and my jaw, and then sew me all back up. And surgery goes well. They come back. They're like so impressed with their workmanship and their craftsmanship. They boast about how wonderful it looks. But a few weeks later, I start to develop excruciating pain. One day it's so bad that the only way I can cope with it is to scream in a pillow. And it just gets worse and worse. And I go back to the surgeons and they realize that the surgery is not working. 
and they get upset and confused and they put me on every experimental treatment they can think of. They put me on constant antibiotics. I get what I like to call a medical gag order. I'm not allowed to talk or eat solid foods for months. And through, as this is going on, the flap is getting worse and worse and worse. And they start accusing me of sabotaging the surgery somehow, hitting it with a toothbrush, talking when I'm not supposed to, eating solid foods, all of which I haven't done. And I start to feel really guilty that I'm somehow letting down the surgeons and that this is my fault and my body's just not healing right. So on my 22nd birthday, the surgeon decides that the surgery has failed. And he pulls out these oversized clippers and tells me to open wide. And he starts to clip out bone out of my mouth. And all I feel is tugging and hearing snap, snap, as he pulls out these shards of bone from the roof of my mouth. And then he tells me there's nothing else he can do and sends me on my way. And I'm absolutely gutted. I go back to school the next term in excruciating pain. Uh, some days the pain's so bad that the only th way I could fall asleep was that my dad would put his hand on my face and that would calm me down enough to sleep. But I'm back at school and the pain is there and it's horrific and it gets worse when I'm stressed or I'm tired or I'm emotional, all of which are occurring at school. And no one understands. My friends tell me to stop being so dramatic my, um, and to stop exaggerating and to just stop talking about it or whining. And so I feel more and more isolated. So I start going back home a lot more often to hang out with my dad because he's the one place I do feel safe. So the following term is my last year of school. And I start to think about my future and I need to get my life back on track. And I take my first neuroscience course. And I fall in love with neuroscience. It's absolutely mind-blowing. I'm so excited. And then on one of those drives back to Toronto, um, I hear a radio show, CBC's Ideas with Paul Kennedy. And it's about pain research in Canada. And I listen to it so closely, and I learn so much. And I know immediately what I want to study. I want to study pain, and I want to look in the brain. And so I start applying to every grad school that offers a, a neuroscience program. In March of that year, um, my dad drowned. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry, my dad drowned. Uh, and it was really hard. Um, and it was especially hard because we'd grown so close over those last few years, and he'd become my best friend. But my family is resilient, and my siblings would never let me give up. So when, um, when I did feel like all hope was lost, thank you. Uh, when I did feel like all hope was lost, they pushed me, and they said, no, you have to keep going. And so I did. And I got an interview at the University of Toronto, and I showed up to the interview, and I, and I was really excited. Um, but the grad coordinator was really concerned that I hadn't secured a lab. And it was really late in the process, or about April. And she's like, what are you going to do? And I pulled out this list of professors that I was really excited to work with. And I forgot the list. And it was in Ottawa on my desk. And I was so embarrassed. And I explained to her what had gone on and why it was such a mess. And she said, OK, tell me what you want to study. And I told her, I really want to study pain. And there's this woman at U of T who studies pain using MRI. And this is exactly what I want to do. 
And she kind of sits up in her seat. And she's like, that's me. <laughs> and I'm so embarrassed. I'm even more mortified than I'm so unprepared. So I, I make my case, and I plead with her, and I tell her why I want to study it and why this matters so much to me. And a few weeks later, she emails me, and she says, you have a spot in my lab to study facial pain. And I'm over the moon, and I'm so happy, and I'm so heartbroken, I can't tell my dad. And I can't share this moment with him. But as the coming years, as, it, as the years go by in my PhD, I start to learn about pain and chronic pain. I now have a word for what I'm going through. And I start to develop strategies to worry less about it. And the more I, wor the more I learn, the less I worry, and the less I worry, the more it fades into the background. And so I have another surgery with a new surgeon uh, who rebuilds my face. And I'm back at school within two weeks. I'm so motivated and I'm so excited to keep learning. And so in all of this, I realized that by studying pain, I regained control. And that was the control that that 20-year-old didn't have when he threw the phone against the wall. Thank you. Massey Moyetti. Massey is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Center for Multimodal Sensory Motor and Pain Research. His research focus is in understanding how pain is processed in healthy individuals and how this is altered by chronic pain. Specifically, he uses non-invasive brain imaging techniques, neurostimulatory techniques, and novel behavioral paradigms to investigate the structure and function including indices of network connectivity in the brain of healthy subjects and patients with chronic pain. Thank you so much, Massey, for sharing this story. Before we move on to our next story, I just want to remind everyone that we are back on with our live online shows tonight. You can find out more at storycliter.org, but tonight's theme is recovery, which fits in pretty well with this episode. So we would love to see you there. Again, find out more at storycliter.org. Our next story today is from Paul Batista. Like Massey's story, it was recorded in January 2020 at the Gladstone Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. The theme that night was, of course, Silver Linings. There's an old saying that says, the man is the only animal that knows how to weep and to laugh because he's the only animal that knows the difference between what is and what should be. In my life, what should be is that my beautiful 22-year-old daughter, Leah, would be sitting out there with all of you. I would be telling a very different story up here and she would be smiling back at me. But that's not what is. What is is that Leah's cremated remains sit in a beautiful Tiffany blue urn on her desk in her two quiet bedroom. Because the combination of a deeply flawed medical diagnostic protocol and a negligent emergency room physician caused her death. My only child, the light of my life, my spectacular girl. Even after all these months, I still can't quite believe it's happened. And so what will happen is these vignettes of that worst week of my life will come back at me. 
It's Friday morning. I step out of the meeting to take a call from Leah. Dad, my back is really hurting. I'm brainstorming with her on how she can help alleviate the pain. I tell her what I did when I had a back spasm a few years earlier. It's Saturday morning. I wake up and see a text from her. She sent it Friday night around midnight. Mom, Dad, I went to emergency. The pain was really hurting. Doctors checked me out, sent me home with Advil. I owe my roommates so much. They stood with me the whole time. Love you. It's early Saturday afternoon. I'm FaceTiming with Leah. I can see her face. She's scared. She's in pain. She's crying. I'm staying calm. Girl, you need to get back to the hospital right away. Tell them what you're feeling. It's later Saturday afternoon. Another text from Leah. Dad, Mom, they checked me out. They gave me a puffer, sent me home. I'm feeling better. Really looking forward to seeing Mom tomorrow. Love you. It's Sunday night, and I received the last text from my girl. Hey, Dad, try to order pizza for my new mates. Uh, card wouldn't go through. Are we having a problem with our credit card? It's 4.50 a.m. Monday morning. The phone rings. Wrong number. Ignore it. It rings again. It's Leah's roommate. You need to come to Kingston General right away. Leah's in a coma. She's in stably unstable condition. It's later Monday morning. After an incredibly incredibly painful two and a half hour drive we arrive at the hospital the nurse takes me in to see my daughter she's lying in the bed i gasp the tears start all i can hear is the sound of the ventilator pumping air in and out of her beautiful lungs the doctor tells me she had a cardiac arrest as a result of a massive blood clot in her lungs the good news he tells me the good news is that her cardiac arrest was witnessed by paramedics She's young, her brain is young. It's Monday afternoon, we're sitting around Leah's bed, the head of neurology from the hospital comes in. He tells us he's just seen the EEG of Leah's brain waves. The prognosis is poor. He isn't sure she'll ever come out of the coma. If she does, she won't be the same girl. I watched my wife collapse at the foot of Leah's bed, sobbing. It's Tuesday morning. A new doctor is in Leah's care. I'm not giving up on her, and you shouldn't either. We are buoyed. We've been holding a 24-hour vigil. Her friends, her roommates, my family. No one is leaving her bedside. We're playing her favorite music. We are telling her favorite stories. We are doing everything to bring her back to us. It's a waiting game. It's Wednesday night. My wife and I head up to the floor where... The people who have patients in the hospital sleep. We push our cots together. We take our sleeping pills. We reach out to hold each other's hands and start sobbing and sobbing and sobbing until the sedation puts us to sleep. It's Thursday morning. We meet with Leah's doctor at her bedside. She's somber. Last night, Leah's brainwave activity changed they want to do another EEG, and they do one. She's so sorry. Leah's moving toward brain death. It's Friday morning, and I'm in a nightmare I can't get out of. 
I'm meeting with a woman who wants to talk to me about organ donation. She comes in, and I say to her, I've never spoken to my daughter about organ donation, but knowing the kind of girl she was, I'm pretty sure she'd be supportive, and she looks at me surprised. You don't know. Leah's signed up for full organ and tissue donation. So for the, for the last time in my life, in her sweet life, my daughter makes me incredibly proud. It's Saturday morning. We come to say goodbye. I walk into her room, and she looks so beautiful. Porcelain white skin, long brown hair. The night nurse had washed and braided it. She cuts off a braid and hands it to me. We say goodbye. On my hardest days, those vignettes come at me. And they're accompanied by a talk track, a narrator who is interjecting, trying to change the course of the outcome of the story. Ask her if she's been on any new prescription drugs. Push the hospital to admit her. Something's wrong. But the story always ends the same. In six short days, I lose the most important person in my life, a person I love more than life itself. In the days and the weeks and the months after Leah's death, my life is in free fall. My world is simultaneously one which I see as very familiar and is completely unrecognizable. I know I'm still coming to grips with all of the ways in which my daughter's death has changed my life and will change it. But one of the ways it's changed me has hit me to my very core in the most profound way. From the moment her beautiful heart stopped beating, I have been in a true existential crisis. Every day, I ask myself those big life questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? How do I find meaning? And this sense of purposelessness is so strange for me because up until she died, I had led such a fortunate and full life. And because of that, like many of you, I had so many ways to answer the question, who am I? I was a son to a wonderful mother, a brother to three amazing siblings. I was a, a friend to countless individuals who I'd known for decades in my life, a husband to a loving wife. I was a partner in a large firm where I was a supportive colleague to many people in that firm. And yet, and yet, the moment her heart stopped beating, all of these aspects of who I was, what made me, me, seemed to diminish into insignificance. And so I began to think about how I could change. And this sense about what I was and who I was was something I was grappling with. I, each and every day, I, I, most days I would, I would enter into the world, I would be in the world but not a part of it. There was a separateness that would envelop my existence. It was though I was living in one reality and everyone was living in another. And I would look at people in my life, my colleagues, my friends, strangers, and I would be amazed at 
the energy, the enthusiasm I would see them putting into whatever they were doing, work or play, I couldn't understand why they would do that. I would have a silent conversation with them. The person you love most in the world will die one day. You will die one day. Why are you spending your time this way? Why? Why? It was as though my life had been, to use an old IT term, had been knocked offline. And in the last number of months, I've been trying hard to, as we used to do with those, those systems, reboot them, get back online again. And everything I try has failed. I have understood that much of why I feel this way is because so many of the things that gave me joy in my life, music, the arts, food, travel, are so inter interconnected with who she was, who she was to me. And so as I try to understand how I move forward with that understanding, I think about how my life can be without her. I dove hard into mindful meditation because I looked back in my life with her and when I did that, the pain of those beautiful memories just brought the, the pain and the anguish so, so hard to me. And yet when I looked forward and contemplated life without her, I was filled with despair. So when I looked back, I had pain and anguish. When I looked forward, I had pain and despair. I, I, I thought that Really, if I could just stay in the moment, moment to moment in my life, I could alleviate most of my suffering. And then help. But it still didn't solve the problem of meaning in my life. And so I struggled. And I read, and I read, and I read every grief book I could grab. And I started to notice there were a lot of references in every grief book to another book, a book that was called Man's Search for Meaning by a gentleman named Viktor Frankl. And I realized I had actually purchased that book a couple of years earlier. When Leah had moved away to the UK to study for first year university, I realized I was at a crossroads in my life and I thought the book might help me, but I had not read it. So I went pouring through my house bookshelf after bookshelf, searching for it, finally found this impossibly thin, hard-covered book, pulled it out, and began to read it. And I was struck by a phrase in that book that hit me so powerfully. When we are no longer able to change our situation, we are forced to change ourselves. I read that over and over again. We were no longer able to change a situation. We are forced to change ourselves. And I realized that as much as I wanted to bring my daughter back, <clears throat> that was never going to happen. She was gone forever. So I had to change myself. And I, I realized that, that when I thought about that, how I could change, there were really only two paths in front of me. I could become a bitter man or to become a better man. I knew because of the way Leah died, the world would give me and accept me to become a bitter man. In fact, they might expect me to be a bitter man. But I also knew that if I did anything other than become a better man, it would be such a terrible indictment of everything my sweet daughter's essence was about. So I chose to become a better man.
I chose to become a man who, when my obituary is written, will say, hey, you know, Paul was a pretty decent guy before his daughter died, but when she died, he found another gear. I founded the Leah Batista Foundation. It's a foundation that's dedicated to doing the work that I know my daughter would have committed, been committed to doing with her life's work had she lived. And every day I ask myself the question of how I can be a better son, a better brother, a better husband, a better colleague, a better friend. How can I be a better man? And the honest truth is most days I don't have an answer. But I know that in asking the question, I'll eventually get some. And I know that that answer, those answers when they come, they'll never provide me with a silver lining in my life. But I truly believe that they will allow me to live the rest of my life in a way that reconciles with what it ought to have been. Thank you. That was Paul Batista. Paul leads the financial services practice for EY Canada. In the wake of the tragic loss of his daughter in 2017 as a result of a flawed diagnostic protocol, he founded the Leah Batista Foundation, dedicated to carrying out work that was destined to become Leah's life legacy had she lived. To that end, her foundation is dedicated to improving, enriching, and empowering the lives of youth and the disadvantaged through health and education, the arts, and social entrepreneurship. To learn more about Leah's kind and generous spirit and to consider supporting the foundation, Please visit leahbatista.org and follow the foundation on Instagram at Leah Batista Foundation or on Facebook at Leah Batista Foundation. Thank you so much, Massey and Paul, for sharing your stories with us. The Story Collider is so grateful for both of you. And we're also so grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from a show produced by Misha Gajewski and Munera Youssef. The podcast is edited by Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Gladstone Hotel for hosting the show, and to everybody out there contemplating how they will start again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>